Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey again, and welcome back to another episode. So we hear people talk about having our own routine and using that to be productive in building a healthy lifestyle. Family routines are just as important in building that lifestyle and also keeping up with all your kids' activities. So Kinsey Pakia joins me on the show today to talk about maintaining a family routine. Uh, Kinsey is a practicing therapist and founder of her company, Bloom and Health Therapy. So thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Kinsey. Oh, thank you for having me, Dina. So how did you go about starting your own company and sort of starting Bloom and Therapy, Bloom and Health Therapy? And what processes you go about sort of gathering a whole team together and also having that space where it's available to talk about? So, yeah, like I, I'm uh, originally from Georgia and I ended up moving to Florida to pursue, pursue my PhD at Florida State. And during that time, I worked in a couple of private practices in town as well as the local hospital. And I just, you know, I felt like there was a better way to do things. So I just kind of took that leap of faith and decided to open my own practice. And in the meantime, it's been a lot of just kind of like learning on your feet, trying to figure out how to do things. Like I have a master's and almost a PhD in being a therapist, not a business owner. So it's been a lot of like Googling and learning things that way, which has been a little challenging at times, but a lot of just like trying and then um, improving upon my failures, right? Learning from things that have gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And what made you really just want to start it yourself rather than sort of following along with um, other practices and being a therapist there? So I think a big part of it in full transparency is the fact that a lot of the um, a lot of the work that we do for other people ends up being taken like profit wise and credit wise and all those things to the person that owns the business. Um, a lot of the practices that are currently open, at least in my area, do take over 60% of whatever you earn for their business. So it's pretty hard to be successful in that atmosphere, as well as the fact that you're consistently just doing whatever policies and practices someone else has put in place. And, you know, I did feel like after all of these years of university training that I was ready to make those decisions for myself. So um, I think like with anyone that wants to try something new, there is the financial incentive of trying to make more money, as well as the fact that you get some more autonomy and independence with those decision-making skills. So a lot of it was just me trying to see if I could do this on my own and do it in a different way. Since then, I've definitely noticed that there's a lot of need for certain services in our area that we don't necessarily have at other companies. And so I've really tried to center our mission statement around that, such as doing more child-related family therapy, because there are less options for that here, as well as less options in general for parent training and things like that. So that's currently what we're working on. But 
at the beginning, I didn't really picture it to ever get this big. So I wasn't really anticipating what the five-year plan would look like. I was just trying to make it happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like that you've done so much work, and especially in talking about moving ahead in family therapy okay. as well and sort of focusing on the more family-related issues when it comes to either mediating um divorce settlements or sort of mediating conversations between two people. What was the, what has been the most amazing yet challenging part of being a therapist and sort of being a family therapist? So what's weird for me is I did move states after I got my master's and as well as the fact that like usually when you're doing a master's in clinical work, after you graduate from that program, you terminate with your clients, meaning they move on, they either get a new therapist in whatever program you were in or they're doing better and they go off and do their own thing. You don't see them long term. Mm-hmm. And since moving to Tallahassee, I have been with some of my clients for three to four years at this point and just being able to see their growth and their determination to make positive change in their everyday lives has just been so inspiring as well as just to have such a unique and meaningful relationship with each of those people. I have about 10 long-term clients um, who have been with me nonstop over the past couple of years and they are just, they are me. They're why I love my job. Um, I really feel like they have helped me grow as a therapist in a variety of ways, but I've also helped them work through some really big major life issues And each of them have come in for separate things. Some of them came in with me as couples who have then since separated and now they're individuals seeing me. Some of them have come in as an individual who later find a life partner. It's just been really nice to follow them on those journeys. Mm -hmm. And also challenging because they all have such different things that they're working on. So being able to stay um, on top of my work as a therapist and being able to help them all while still... um, you know, working on a PhD and all these other things, it's hard to manage all those things. I think people forget that people that are working on these PhDs are still seeing clients during that time. We're still working. We're still doing all these things. You don't see that as much in other PhD programs. So that's mm-hmm. something that I think is under-recognized is how hard it is to do it in this field. Um, but I've really appreciated those clients the most. Mm-hmm. And especially in terms of, I mean, we're talking today about family routine and sort of mm-hmm. managing that routine yourself how does a routine in a family really progress in terms of relationships just to start off with right so family routine i think like this whole idea of what are our roles and what are the things that we are doing in our family unit right so one of the more confusing things about family therapy is there's a lot of things that we call models in family therapy and so model is the way that you look at the world A model is the way that we kind of conceptualize what's going on around us. And there's about, there's an infinite number of those, but there's about five big ones. And each one of those, if a therapist uses a different one, we all look at the world a little bit differently. So I'm saying all of this from my model and my world perspective as a therapist. But I think a large part of what I try to help families realize is we all have a role in our family unit. And in family therapy, it's this general idea that we all have these roles in an effort to create homeostasis in our lives. And if someone is to leave that role or change their role, that will create less homeostasis in our everyday family unit. That will probably create issues, sometimes chaos, sometimes dissatisfaction with other people's roles. So people tend to underestimate exactly how much work it takes to leave whatever that family role, family routine is. Typically, 
as our kids grow up, as our marriage progresses, we get really stuck in these roles. And that's because it is our internal, uh, it's our internal thing to just create homeostasis. We want consistency and peace in our everyday life. And it's just like the saying, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. Even if there's chaos in your everyday system, it's chaos that you know. It's things that you know how to deal with, things that you're used to dealing with. If you were to change that role or change that routine, who knows what's going to happen? And I feel like that's where a lot of people struggle when they come into our work. And I will say, you know, I think it's also important to highlight that people that come in for individual therapy are still working on family therapy issues, at least with me. As a marriage and family therapist, I think that it is important to recognize that everything I do looks at that family perspective and those family routines. I am not just looking at the individual. That is possibly different for people that have social work degrees or mental health counseling degrees or whatever individual therapy degrees there are. But because I come from a systemic viewpoint, everything I do looks at like, well, what routines did you have as a kid? What patterns did your family have? What role did you have? Like that's all connected for family therapists. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think it's especially important sort of in terms of what I understand, balancing all these different roles. And I know that everyone sort of plays multiple roles around the house, whether it's like the oldest child, the youngest child, the mother, the father, they're always playing multiple different where it's sort of, it overlaps with each other very well. Right. And how does that in a routine and sort of like finding that routine, how does that affect each of those different individual roles? Like for example, as your life gets older, as the oldest child can learn to drive, there's like an ability for the oldest child to sort of take on responsibilities of driving their younger siblings to different destinations, to different activities. How does that sort of change the relationship as like a mother and a father? So your question is, how do our roles change as our kids get older? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, to sum it up, yeah. I think that that's, I think that's an interesting question. And there's a lot of, a lot of ways that I could conceptualize that. So like the first thing that comes to mind is the idea of metacommunication. Have you ever heard that term? No, I haven't. Metacommunication is one of the key components of family therapy. And it is in some the idea that we are always communicating. Everything that we do is communication. So even if you and I just sat here and stared at each other, we're communicating, right? We communicate through nonverbal, verbal. Um, There's always ways that we're communicating our needs or our wants or our distaste. So I feel like a lot of times people don't pick up on these communication patterns as much, but um, developmentally, we are kind of like trained to do that, right? Like we're trained to sense danger. We're we're trained to find... um, a way to get along with people so that there's not conflict stuff like that so like as kids grow up they're finding ways to communicate with their parents what they are or are not willing to do in my opinion and i think that changes our roles i also would say on top of that we have like these family patterns that are really hard to break and a lot of times people repeat the way that they were raised we see parents that are raised with model A, they're going to raise their kids with model A, maybe with a few tweaks. They're going to try to make some changes. They're going to try to improve. Everyone wants to be better than their parents were, but they're going to base it around like, well, this is how I know it works, right? Like I turned out okay, so I'm going to do the things that worked for me. And so we have both of these kind of things working together where we're trying to raise our kids in a way that we know will be beneficial for them. We know it'll work. 
And then we also adapt those things based on these components of metacommunication. We adapt based on how our kids are communicating with us. So like if I, so like I've noticed with any kid, if they spend enough time fighting back, eventually the parent will stop picking the fight. They will let the kid get away with whatever it is that they're trying to get away with. And mm-hmm. that's just, again, we're, it's our natural instinct to try to avoid conflict at a certain level. We don't want to be in this constant headbutting thing. So maybe the kid was getting independence because that's how the parent thought that it should go. But maybe the kid was also getting independence because they refused to take no for an answer. There could be a lot of ways for us to look at that. Okay. And before we dive deeper into the topic for today, I love to start off with a little icebreaker just to get to know you and some of your interests and some of your hobbies before we start diving to you as a professional. Okay. Um, So yeah, when I ask these questions, just feel free to share the first thing that sort of comes to your head. Okay. Uh, The first one is a favorite book of yours. Mm, Harry Potter. All okay. of them, every single yeah. one. <laughs> I can deeply understand that. I think yeah. I've read all of them, but the last three. But I think by that time I found it. Twilight. So, <laughs> oh, of course, yes, yeah. of course. A good, um, a good transition. Yeah, no, it was it was into my teen years, and I felt like it was a necessary change. <laughs> okay, but are you Team Edward or uh, Team Jacob? I would love to be Team Edward, but I cannot. The, I cannot deal with the idea of living forever right i'm like i'm i'm done by that time by that time i get to 100 i want to live to 100 and then that's it <laughs> it does seem very boring like after a while this yeah. whole like the empire thing yeah yeah it's fun at the beginning and then it's like okay i have to start running away from people because they found out that i can't <laughs> age yeah <laughs> um what was the most recent movie that you've watched Okay, I watched this movie called Stowaway with my partner last night, which has Anna Kendrick on it. It's on Netflix, and it was so strange. I don't even know. Like, this guy, they're astronauts. He hides in the aircraft. They're faced with this, like, ethical dilemma because they're going to run out of air. It's It was interesting. I don't really know how I feel about it still. I'm still kind of processing. It was supposed to be a thriller because we love scary movies. It was not scary, but it made me think a lot. Yeah. So... Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. I'm definitely going to search that. I can't believe I've never seen, I haven't seen it yet because I love Anna Kendrick. So okay. I'm, yeah, I'm surprised. We, we knew too. That's why we were like, it's got to be good. She's fantastic. Right. And it wasn't bad. I was just like not expecting the storyline. And I kept okay. thinking he was going to like try to kill all of them or something. And like that never happened. So I feel like I was just like let down. I was like, what's happening? Uh, I hate when those movies sort of expect the ending and it's not what you expected at all, but in the worst way. Yeah, it was very, yeah, the movie was anticlimactic. Like there was uh, a sad ending, but it wasn't like, yeah. Kind of reminds you of Kevin in the Woods. Yeah, we watched that too. Also yeah. a weird movie. Also I don't very know. strange. Very strange. Yeah, we, yeah, I don't know. Um, so the next one is a favorite podcast of yours. Oh, okay. So my first answer I feel like I should give or my co-host will kill me is definitely my own podcast that I run um, called it. We have a psychology podcast called Mentally Morbid. Um, and then aside from that, we also are all big, really big fans of My Favorite Murder. And we definitely idolize those women and try to find ways that we can be as awesome as they are. So I really <laughs> appreciate their storytelling. Okay. So you're definitely a true true crime girly, yes. just like me. Yes, for sure. <laughs> 
I get scared when it comes to insidious and conjuring, but when it comes to actual true crime things, it doesn't scare me at the slightest. Right. It's very, <laughs> people are fascinating. And I feel like there's no, like I will never stop being fascinated. Like even today I was on like Snapchat news and there was this guy that apparently just got found and he's possibly a serial killer and they're charging him and all these things. And he is trying to look like really say like, I didn't do any of this while they're like possibly digging up people's remains in his backyard. And I'm just like, what is, what makes this happen? Yep. No, I, it's amazing how people think they can get away with things and they do for the longest time. I don't even feel like I could like, like I, I've had some clients in the past who steal and I'm, I'm like nervous for them. I'm like, they're going to find out. And they're like, they're really not. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm too much of a rule follower. So it could not be me. No, it, it, it can never. But I love listening to it, though. Yes. I would never do it, but I love listening to it. Right. I really like when people do stories on things that I can also watch a TV show about, too. I'm, yeah. I'm a very visual learner. So I'm like, oh, this is it. I'm ready to deep dive. Like when all the yeah. Murdoch stuff came out, I was like, OK, I'm ready. I'm going to immerse myself into this. Yeah. No. Well, you're definitely in the right career for that then. Yes. <laughs> so it's, it's perfect. It came as a natural calling. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, who do you have as your fam- a famous role model? Oh, that's a hard one. I am a big, big fan of the Obamas. So I think famous-wise, it would have to be... I want to say Michelle because I'm a feminist, but it'd have to be Barack. I'm, like, obsessed with Barack Obama. So I have no interest in politics, but everything about them, I just feel like they're very good, like, nice well-rounded people they have a lot of skills and talents i appreciate that they're able to do a lot of different things well so i've always idolized them the biggest thing i learned from him i think is probably use the elastic band when you're public speaking and just sort of like every time you're about to stuff up just be like no i'm not going to say um i'm not going to say ah i'm not going to be able to stuff this up because i just cannot afford to and yeah, that's the biggest thing I learned from him. There was, politics is not my biggest interest, but I watched it almost a lot of the things that they did because it was just an interesting family to have in the White House. Right. Oh, and it's so different, right? Because like I feel like the people that we really idolize in the United States are going to be different than who you guys idolize in Australia. So like it's very like area yeah. focused at times. And like yeah. I don't know anything about politics outside of the US. So I'm just impressed you know who they are honestly people talk to me a lot of my friends i think we talk about american politics more than our own politics so because it's on the news more and we hear it so more oft so much more often about the latest crisis that's happening the latest american thing that's happening we don't hear about it ourselves from our own country but we hear about it in america (laughs) that's what happens when we make poor decisions with our elections yes i am not a huge fan of what's been happening here but you know it happens um maybe that's also why i'm still really obsessed with the obamas because that was the last time i felt any sense of sanity coming from upstairs but you know um i also see a lot of things in the news about our politics so i'm not surprised well it's it's a good thing that you're in um it makes sense knowing it from the u.s but for us knowing a bit more of it than um than we know our own it's kind of it's kind of concerning I think, especially when we're forced to vote here. So it is a bit concerning. Oh, I didn't know that. I wish we would implement that. Yeah. Well, imagine how the world would be different. 
Yeah. <laughs> now to finish off with, what would be your most recent course that you've completed? Hmm. My most recent course I've completed. What was that? I feel like the last thing I really went to um, was an eating disorder training. Um, mm -hmm. But I can't remember if that was the most recent one or not. We'll just go with that one. So I did an eating disorder, what's the word, conference which is my uh, original intended area of expertise. So like I said earlier, I do adapt and I find myself to be definitely the kind of person like I don't shy away from a challenge. So like my area of focus has shifted dramatically in the last couple of years. But when I originally moved to Florida, it was primarily eating disorders, mm -hmm. which is what my area of focus for research is on. So I still do treat those populations and I'm still very passionate about that. But I haven't done eating disorder training in literally forever. So I did that through um, NIDA, which is the National Eating Disorder Association, the probably last month. And it was really good. I enjoyed it. Well, that sounds like it sounds a very interesting pathway and like the way that the brain sort of works in terms of eating disorders and what like body dysmorphia and how that sort of fits into it. It's really it's a really interesting topic to sort of dive into. I will say, you know, to keep it as brief as possible, my entire thesis and manuscript right now is about this idea that our families are the primary cause of eating disorder. So I think it definitely focuses on what you guys talk about with your podcast and what we're talking about today, because a lot of times it is certain parenting styles and certain relationships with our parents are going to be more likely to lead to us developing disordered eating behaviors, even if they don't reach criteria for that. So it's really interesting. Yeah, no, it's amazing how much we get from our family and how much we learn and understand and the cycles sort of repeat and we try to we try to say that we're not going to be anything like our parents and somehow we end up doing exactly the same thing so no it is a, it's a really interesting I think families are the most complicated parts of anyone's life whether right. you're in a good relationship or a bad relationship, sometimes you think you're in a good relationship when you're really in a toxic environment and you don't even know it because you're so comfortable with it. So it's right. it's a very interesting aspect to sort of really talk about and fits in with our perfect fits in perfectly with our next question in terms of our interview today. Um, what do you think your definition of a family would be? I think that's a really good question. And I think, you know, there are two ways that I could describe that. So I think we have our nuclear family, right? We have the people that we were biologically born to that a lot of people feel we have this kind of loyalty to. And in my opinion, more often than not, when people come for family therapy, it's going to be because of those people. But we also have this like chosen family idea, which I really love and I really appreciate. I am definitely not, I am never going to be the therapist that's like, you should continue working on that relationship that's toxic to you because she's your mother or he's your father or yada, yada. I am not that person. I'm also just a very direct therapist. So I also, I tell my clients I'm not that person. I'm like, listen, this is about you. What do you need to do? But I'm never going to support us forcing a relationship to work because of biology. So then we have our chosen family, right? And that can be friends, roommates, coworkers, those, and those I think are more flexible approaches to family. I feel like your chosen family, some people it stays really 
stagnant and the same throughout your whole lifetime. Some people, it changes based on phases of life that we're in. Some people, um, you meet the person that is more like your family when you're in your 50s and you've never had a relationship like that before. We don't really ever know what that's going to look like. Well, your biological family is going to be these people that you've known your whole life, right? So kind of depends which one you're looking at. More often than not, family therapy-wise, we're going to be looking at your biological family, though. Mm-hmm. And do you agree that it's, there's definitely not a universal definition or universal? I mean, you're talking about chosen versus biological family. Where do you think that we sort of adapted that idea of a chosen family? I mean, it's definitely not something I heard when we were in the last, when I was growing up being like, oh, you get to choose, pick and choose who your family is. So do you think that's a recent sort of adaptation of what a family would be? Hmm. That's a really good question. And I'm just going to sound like a broken record and say I can answer that a lot of ways, just like I'm going to say everything else tonight. But I... My like first instinctual thought was, I wonder if the movement towards LGBTQ marriages has changed what family looks like for us. I feel like at least in the United States, we've had so many issues with them, with the fact that people were getting married and it wasn't being recognized by the courts. And then it was, and now they're trying to take it away again. Like there's been all this back and forth with that, where people just started to like really just like take their own idea they were like this is my wife this is my partner this is my x y or z and like they really tried to like i feel like there was just a movement for that with like this idea that like you can't tell me what family looks like Mm -hmm. and i would say it's got to be due to that as well as like this fact that like it is hard to adopt as people who are not straight it is hard to adopt if there's two husbands or two wives and i feel like people have just seen a lot more that like what's on paper isn't always what matters mm-hmm. but as well as like this idea that like people in general are just starting to realize that we don't have to put up a toxic behavior just because they're family and i feel like that has caused some sort of stir in this idea that like you can have other people that are family to you mm-hmm. yeah and i think especially when it comes to if especially when you're talking about today's politics and sort of today's sort of understanding as to what relationships are and what friendships are. And I think especially the idea of family, there is that whole idea of us just not really, us not really having the greatest relationship with the biological family and, but still needing that mentorship or still needing that relationship. And I know that we, there are a lot of my friends who have used um, the term mother in term, like call a friend mother, because it's the mother friend. It's the, it's the dad that will tell you off, but it's the friend who's the dad. And there's a whole idea of using that as a connection and using that. We still have those terms in terms of what a mother is and what a father is, but who we sort of choose to be the mother and father can be completely different than who you're actually born into. So when it comes to the biological family, because I know that's probably what we're going to talk about a lot today. Do you think that it still holds the same importance as bio families have done in the past? For some communities, yes. I think religiously, um, in certain religious groups, it is still very important. I think in certain ethnic racial groups it is very important um and then for a lot of groups it is less important and i would say a lot of groups typically that's going to be probably 
non-religious white people is what I would think. A lot of those people don't necessarily care about that idea as much. But when we see anybody that's not white, a lot of times family is very important to them. And as well as like the smaller, more um, strict religious groups, I feel like it is a lot more important to them than it is for just those people that are spiritual or just blanket Christian, whatever term you want to use for that. The people that are more (laughs) ingrained with whatever their religious upbringing was are going to find that that's more important mm-hmm. for people that come from the identity that I describe myself as you know I am not necessarily the most religious person I do um I am white and I don't feel like family was as big a thing in my group as it was in some others mm-hmm. so yeah, I don't know okay the- no it's it's really interesting I think like because I grew up from a religious background and I grew up sort of understanding that parents hold the hierarchy, parents are, you have to do what you're told, you have to follow that. And I am not that close with my grandparents. So it's basically just been the four of us with my sister as well. And just sort of understanding that we have to do what we're told. We can't sort of break. I was very scared as a kid to sort of break any kind of rule that sort of came about. Oh, I couldn't go out after nine o'clock. I would lose friendships over not going out after nine o'clock because it started to get dark and then you have to be home before dark with all those different things. Um, so it's really interesting to sort of talk about the the fear that the fear that sort of comes in when it comes to parents and just doing what you're told and knowing that that's what they expect of you. Now that I'm older, there's that whole, it's so different for me now. Like now there is, they're so much more lenient than they were when I was growing up. And the whole expectation is, is very different. So now I'm staying up until like two o'clock in the morning and coming home at that time and finding that balance. And I think, especially when it comes to, as I'm getting older, as like anyone gets older, I think the routine, the expectation is very different. And today we're talking about the building strong and healthy relationships with a family routine involved. And I know there's, it's going to look different from each area of a child, from a young family to an older family, the routine is definitely going to be different. What would you define a family routine to be? Right. And I love how you preface that because I think your experience is exactly what that looks like, right? Your relationship with your parents as an adult is going to look completely different than your relationship with your parents before that. Um, So I would say a family routine typically, um, and this term is so interesting, right? Because like, I feel like it's a, it's a word that we use often like routine. And I haven't, until we, until we touched base with each other, I never really thought about it as like a family routine, but it's kind of like this day-to-day roles, responsibilities, and schedule that we would see as a family unit, which is really interesting because oftentimes, like, as a clinician, I don't even talk about that. So it's definitely something that I'm like, oh, wow, I should really, I should bring that up more because I often spend so much time talking about my client's routine, right? Their Mm -hmm. roles, their responsibilities. Well, this is like, what is everybody else doing and how are these pieces getting together? So I really like that term. I like this idea that A routine looks different based on age, but I would say it's definitely like our day-to-day as well as like our overarching roles in whatever our family unit looks like. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what activities really usually fall under the family routine or the family guidelines and 
practices that sort of go about. Okay. So I think that would include, you know, who makes dinner, who does the laundry, what chores look like. Certain households have chores and they are very important. Certain households have chores they don't get done at all. You know, you can see where I'm going here. It's kind of a spectrum there. Um, who picks the kids up? Who drops the kids off? Who is responsible for bedtime? Do we switch off on those responsibilities? Um, I see this being a lot more concrete with small babies. Like three and under, I really see like this being like a thing people talk about. And then like as kids get bigger, like I just feel like it stops being talked about so much. I feel like it becomes more like realistically and in full disclosure, I have a background in women's and gender studies. Like my my bachelor's degree is in that. So like all of this is definitely coming from a feminist perspective, but women in general are expected to do more both in a household and at a full-time job. So it's been really interesting to watch. We've had several waves of feminist perspective happening in our country and I'm sure around the world, but all of my experience in academia has been in the United States. So we've had like three big waves of feminism. Mm -hmm. And for each of those, it's been really interesting because women have been expected to take on more roles and responsibilities while men have not changed at all. So a man that's working 40 hours a week right now has the exact same amount of responsibility as a man did in the 60s and the 50s. While a woman is doing now full-time job as well as full-time housekeeping because in the 50s and 60s, women were stay-at-home moms and now we're not, partially because people can't afford that anymore, partially because women realize there's more to life than just staying at home with your kids all the time and they want to follow careers and passion, all of these reasons. But I do see like, I really do see that shift in our family routine. Like I feel like dads are typically, not always, but typically a lot more hands-on with babies. And then as kids grow up, mom just becomes the primary caretaker for a lot of these roles and responsibilities. And a family routine would be more about what does dad help with when he has time rather than splitting responsibility down the middle, if you get what I'm saying. Like, I feel like the routine is not necessarily about mom. I feel like she does everything that is not getting picked up by someone else's routine. Mm -hmm. And I think that that idea really scares me in terms of the males, the not taking on more of a responsibility or even the kids as they get older, not taking on more responsibility in terms of, oh, <laughs> in terms of what to, what to expect in a family in order to keep the house running. It's usually if it's not on the board, it's not happening or people can't see well, what's happening. People don't know. People can't keep track of it themselves. They need it to be on a board in order for yes. everyone to see. And it needs to be in different colors. And I remember that in my house as well, as we got older, we had a schedule as to who's going to be where at what time and everyone had their own color. Um, and it was, we all had certain things that we were set to do. If we we're going to be home that day, there were things that we had to do. It was no we got to have a whole day to ourselves. It was more like, okay, this is, you can do the laundry while everyone's out. You can do the dishes and clean the kitchen and all these different roles and responsibilities. And I, as an adult now, I feel like I'm pretty much burnt out of doing that role constantly. of sort of taking on the same responsibilities that is sort of expected of me as a kid. Cause I did it so much as a kid. Um, you know, with my, my mom, who's a stay at home mom, my dad, who was working full time and pretty much was never there throughout the whole time of my 
childhood just because I only saw him leaving and coming home and going to bed and having dinner, um, maybe mow the lawn once every couple of weeks, but that's pretty much it. And now that as an adult, I think me and my sister have both gone on strike. We're like, we need a break of doing it so much as a kid just to keep the house running. If, you know, my mom was running markets during the weekends and running little small businesses as well. So she was busy working. And there was that whole idea of it was meant to keep everyone sane. Everyone had the role in order to keep each other at least level-headed. So there wasn't stuff lying around the house that we'd have to pick up at random points when we didn't feel like it. But in terms of that, how do you think, you know, that consistent role, that consistent routine that sort of is needed to keep a family running, how does that impact or even strengthen family relationships that sort of can be for the better or worse? So I think what you're saying is really interesting. So I don't know how much background you do have in this, but there are four main types of parenting. Like there's four parenting types mm-hmm. that um, range anywhere from low to high structure and low to war, low to high warmth. And so each of these four parenting types is going to have a different outcome there. It sounds like your family was very much higher on the structure. And also, you know, just based on some of the subtle things that you've said, it does seem like your family was high on warmth. It seems like you're still close to them. And so I think that's going to be where we see our kids, you know, really theoretically achieving and succeeding in life. The more structured and more friendly and caring and warm a family is, the better they're going to do. But like you said, there's also some nuances to that where you are feeling exhausted because you're doing all these things. What's really important for us to recognize is that a lot of times we believe that all families look like our family looked. Like we just naturally picture other people's families to look how our family looked and they do not. And that's what's crazy about being a therapist. Families look so different behind the scenes. And that's what I love about having these relationships with people is they tell me these deep things. Like they tell me like their inner life and I get to hear that and learn about them and stuff. But like everyone's family looks so different. We have kids that aren't doing any of that that aren't helping at all. And we have kids that are doing more than you were doing, kids that are completely taking care of their families at a young age because their parents are completely uninvolved. So it's just like this wide spectrum that is just insane. And I think the outcomes for each of those things is going to be slightly based on that as well as from what we've seen in our research, slightly based on a child's just personality and temperament. Like you and I could be put in the exact same situation and I would end up in a completely different outcome than you because We have different personalities. We have different temperaments and different things that make us triggered or work harder or whatever it is. And so I do want to mention that here that I I think your parenting style has a big outcome on that. But so does your so does your kid, right? Like each of our kids is born inherently with like different personality traits that's going to impact them differently. And I see a lot of parents that struggle with that as well because they have two kids that their outcomes are completely different. They're like, I don't know what happened. Like, I don't know what's wrong. And it's like, your kids are just different. So slight tangent there. Can you repeat your question? I don't think I answered it. I was just... No, that's okay. No, I think we definitely sort of started talking about it. I think one of the questions was, how does establishing that constant routine and sort of having that constant routine and how does that help to sort of strengthen a family's relationship? Oh, very much so. I think having consistency is so important for a relationship. Um, even in couples therapy, like a lot of our, um, 
a lot of our couples work is based on this idea of trust and commitment. And so just like knowing where you stand with somebody is really important, knowing like what to expect from them. And that they see a lot of time also bases up like how secure our relationship is going to be with our parents, because there's Mm -hmm. various levels of that. But kids that feel the most secure in their attachment styles are more likely to believe my parent is doing what's best for me and they're always going to come back just to keep it as simple as it can be, right? Like my parents going to come back. Kids that are insecurely attached don't believe their parents are going to come back. They don't believe their parents doing what's best for them. And so to keep it as simple as that, having consistency in your household and always being the same or being the, as being as the same as you can be, like that's super important. It tells a kid where to stand. It tells them what to expect. It gives them the ability to understand what's going on day to day. Kids' mm-hmm. brains aren't fully developed. Kids cannot keep up with constant change in the same way that adults can. So I think consistency is super important. And consistency is going to be one of the biggest things we tell parents for raising kids with any sort of diagnosis, especially um, ODD, which is oppositional defiant disorder and ADHD. I feel like those are like the really big ones that stand out to my brain right now. It's like those are the ones where like consistency is so important because those kids Mm -hmm. can get triggered in like an instant. Mm -hmm. And... What are some of the common challenges families face when sort of first establishing that routine? So going, it all connects, which is nice. Going back to what I said earlier, metacommunication, right? Like their kids are going to push back. They're going to be grumpy. They're going to slam doors. They're going to huff and puff, especially if you're not, if you have not started from the beginning with a system like that, they're not going to like it. And consistency is so, so important. And consistency is the biggest difference we've seen between first and second order change. So first order change is going to be a minor change. Like this week, Milo took the trash out every day to like Milo is responsible for the trash every day is going to be our second order change. So like long-term change is dependent on consistency, but parents don't want to upset their kids. A lot of the time parents are like very sensitive beings. They feel very upset when children are upset with them, even though we know (laughs) feelings pass, um, Time management, as I mentioned for myself, and I'm sure anyone else can attest to, time management is so hard. So finding the time, like you said, to write down on the whiteboard, this is what everyone's in charge of for the day. Like, who has time for that? So finding consistency with that, super important, but also very difficult because we have to be able to manage our time in order to manage other people's time. Mm -hmm. And then just being able to bounce back after challenges like it's just like with people who want to get back into the gym or diet or things like that people who get set with a challenge often have a really hard time getting back to where they started so whether it's a vacation or summer break or whatever it is like we have a really hard time re-entering that system so maybe we're doing really really good and then may hits and the kids are on vacation how do we get back into that when August gets back around and school starts again? That's a that's a big, big barrier for a lot of people. They're like, we used to do it. I don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. And so how, in terms of like one of the challenges, how do you sort of set the routine in order for a child to really just follow through with it as they get older, especially without really, I mean, because routines are meant to show them consistency, to show them how they can be independent and do things on their own. How do you sort of do that without them really absolutely hating it as they get older? I am a huge fan of token economies. And so by that, I mean, I do something to get something. 
Um, there are downsides to that. And a lot of people are very hesitant to do that with their children. And I think that's because in essence, people think too big with it. I really appreciate the simplistic fact of if you do X, Y, and Z, you get X, Y, and Z. And I mm-hmm. think people really forget that that's like why we do anything. Like I am not going to work every day because I feel passionate about this career and that is my lifeblood. Like I do enjoy it, but I'm also going to pay my bills and make a living to support my family. I'm not mm-hmm. going to the gym every day with the expectation that my body does not look any different. I'm not um, trying to eat healthier for the same aspect, right? Like we do something to get something. Mm-hmm. Kid- Kids are the same way. Kids are also very short-sighted. Like kids have very short attention spans. Research shows that if I was to offer the typical three-year-old one marshmallow now or two marshmallows later, they're always going to pick one marshmallow, like nine times out of 10. Kids have like literally no idea what long-term outcomes are. So in my opinion, a chore chart is super effective. And then like working on like a token economy, like treasure hunts. Like I'm sure you can think back to when you were in elementary school and like if you had a really good week at school, you got to open the treasure box and you got like a sticker or something from your teacher. Like that still works at home. People Mm -hmm. like literally just need to think so simple, right? Like I prefer to keep it as simple as possible. I have one kid right now who is a client of mine and I just have this little whiteboard, not whiteboard, what's the word, Um, poster board. And every time she has a really good session, she gets stickers to put on it and decorate it. And she loves it. And she gets very upset with me when she does not get a sticker. We can do that same thing at home. Mm -hmm. They work towards something. So give them a certain amount of chores. They get a point or whatever for each chore that they do each week and then set rewards with them, right? Like, and it doesn't have to be anything big. It can be you pick what we have for dinner tonight. Like we're going to have any, we're going to make dinner anyways, but you get to pick. It could be, we'll go get you a sticker book at the dollar store. We'll go get you, we'll pick, you get to pick the movie for movie night. Like I think a lot of times parents get like really overwhelmed with like giving their children decision-making or they're like, I can't afford to do that or... I can't keep up with that. But like, first and foremost, keeping up with it is very important because if you are not consistent, the kid's not going to be consistent. Second off, like I said, it doesn't have to be anything big. It can be integrated into your regular routine. If you already have family movie night or you already have family game night, you let them pick what you're doing. If they aren't being good, you get to pick what you're doing. You do it anyways. (laughs) You give them a sticker book. You buy them a treat at the gas station. But have them work towards something, right? Have them work towards a reward. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a whole lot better than sort of having, if you don't do this amount of tasks, then you can't do, you can't like go to your friend's house on the weekend. You can't then like you hold sort of hold that um, on their heads. Like if they don't do the dishwasher, empty the dishwasher or vacuum the living room, you can't go and see your friend at the mall on Saturday. Like I... I remember so many of my friends sort of had that, had the plans hung on their heads being like, okay, they have to be really good and do all the stuff that they're supposed to do. Otherwise they can't come and see us on the weekend or they can't come over to my house on the weekend. And that was just something that, I think that was the parents' parenting style that really set that on. And I think the reward chart, the reward, it seems like as you get older, it does seem like such a, cliche thing to do and it does seem like oh okay it's not as effective I I didn't find that as effective to me when I was a teenager um so I did sort of had one or two things probably hung on my head because I didn't sort of empty the dishwasher or things like that but 
as a kid, it was very effective for me. It was something that I loved. I was like, okay, I get to have a lollipop when yes. um, every time I sort of finish something or I get to, if I was really good throughout the week, there was such a, I could go out to the park on the weekend or I could go bike riding or something fun. But as I get older, as I got older, there was a whole different, I think, terms of what I wanted to do and the activities that I wanted to do that didn't involve my parents, that didn't involve um, family members, involved, okay, I'm just going to go out and see my friends. So because I wanted to see my friends, there was something I had to do in order to be able to do that. No, yeah. Yeah. How well does that reward chart work? So what you're emphasizing right now is the difference between positive and negative reinforcement. Like we either give you something because you did something or we take something away because you didn't do something. Mm -hmm. And I want this, like, I want to keep this in simple terms that everyone can understand. And I want you to think about how do I train a dog? What do I do to train a dog? I give them treats. I say a praise, right? It's a very simple process. I give you something, you do something. And Mm -hmm. I mean, realistically, people still beat their dogs and that's what that's not working. That's just making them be afraid of you. Just like, I mean, being mean to your kids is not going to make them feel any better about doing something. They're just going to be not happy with you. So Mm. to keep it in simple terms of that, I want you to remember like behavior modification with animals is just like behavior modification with people. We are just more complex versions of that. I want the cookie just as much as the dog wants the cookie. My cookie just looks a little bit different. Mm -hmm. I do agree with you completely, I think. The idea of what that chore chart does. Chore charts probably only work until about 12 years old. And I think once we get to that teenage point or that preteen point, like our emphasis on that is going to change. And I think at that point, it definitely needs to be more of a like, you have certain expectations in place in order to get the things you want. And I would really encourage people to negotiate with their children with what they would want. And people are going to hate to hear that, right? Especially people that come from parent house like you, where the parent is the uh, adult and the kid is the kid, right? Like people are going to hate to hear that. But like, I cannot read your mind. I don't know what you want right now, right? Like I can't just tell you like, oh, I'll give you a lollipop and then it'll work. Like I need to know what motivates you. And so that's when you really sit down with your kid and you say, what do I, what do you want in order for what I want, right? How do we meet both ways? And like, and a lot of me wants to say like, this could be really helpful for the kid as well, right? Like working on their negotiation skills, working on communication, things like that. It can be really helpful for them to develop as a human, but work with that. Each kid's going to be different. I have no way to know what your child would want, but some of the things that come to mind for me are iPad time, time with friends, time borrowing the car. Like these are all things that you need to do an X amount of chores each week to be able to get that thing, right? Like mm-hmm. it's so there are some really cool apps that some of my parents use nowadays that like keep track of like a positive or a negative mark. So some parents find that useful. Like as long as you're doing more good things than not, you get to have your whatever it is. But there's different ways that we could adapt that. But first and foremost, you got to figure out what your kid wants. Second off, you got to figure out like how you can keep track of that. At Mm. that point, though, I do want to emphasize, I think once a kid gets to a point where this chore chart is not working as well, it's a really good time to make them in charge of the chore chart because we want to work smarter, not harder. We do not want to be doing everything. We want the kid to tell me, what did you do this week to earn going to the mall with your girlfriends? What did you do so that I give you 20 bucks to go to the movies? You know, whatever it is. So Mm -hmm. we want them to be able to 
tell me, like, what have you been doing to contribute to our household? And we also want them to, again, be able to communicate what's going on with them and work on telling you why they should get what they're getting. Because I feel like a lot of times the way that our basic family units are set up, we like don't teach kids how to communicate. We don't teach them how to state their needs. And like, that's not always helpful. Actually, I would, no. I'm gonna I would take that back. That's never helpful. We want the kids <laughs> to we want them to know how to talk about what they're doing right and you know talk and communicate. Mm-hmm. And it's it's one of the hard things I think as they get older, and I think that's something I realized when I looked back on my childhood. I look back because I look back on my childhood a lot on this show and talk a lot about <laughs> talk a lot about it, but um. In terms of being a teenager, the, it felt like everything was being held up on me, being like, okay, if I wanted to be able to go out and see my friend on the weekend, I had to do all these sort of things. So that chore chart, it worked to an extent, but it also felt like it was a threat. Like if those things didn't get finished, I couldn't go out. So I think like, I don't know how it was worded as I was growing up, but it felt very it felt very threatening in yeah. terms of being able to, okay, it's not just something that I have the right to do. I don't have the right to go and see my friends or hang out with friends. There was a responsibility I had to uphold in order to be able to see them. And that was the reward. It was a reward to go out and spend some time by myself. It was a reward to sort of do that. And it and it was really difficult to not see it as that anything else but that i think a lot of times a thing i think the biggest issue i would say between myself and clients that come in to see me is i am always going to encourage autonomy for all members of the unit no matter what and some people don't like that some people want me to come in and be like you're a kid you need to do better and like that's just not how this works like i'm you're gonna come in and same with like couples that i see right like we all need to do better. We're all autonomous beings and we all need to figure out what works for us, right? And like, it sounds like your parents could have used some challenging on how to help you find your voice a little bit more. And also like, again, negative reinforcements on a Negative reinforcement is almost never as helpful as positive reinforcement. So taking something away is almost never as good long-term as to giving something extra. We almost always want to rely on positive reinforcement more often than not because negative reinforcement does lead to the feelings that you're expressing, right? Um, a little bit of teenage angst, feeling a little resentful, not wanting to do the things you're supposed to be doing. Like that's literally what every teenager across the world feels because we need to get out of this out of this thing that we're doing. Yeah. I think so. How do you to sort of finalize this sort of this topic before we jump into the practices that you would do? But how would you separate, for example, like for the way that I'm describing how my parents spoke about it, we talked about in a negative reinforcement. How would you sort of change that into a positive reinforcement? So I think a big thing is reminding them that you should not be getting nothing. Like you should not be getting doing all of these things just because that's your role in the family, going back to what we were talking about earlier, right? Like mm-hmm. everyone does things to get something. They're doing things because they want a nice house. Like they're feeling internally motivated. Kids do not feel internally motivated by the same things adults do. 
kids are mm-hmm. not coming home. Like the older we get, the more we want to just come home to a clean house. We want the laundry to be done. Like we want these mental loads to be off our brain. But mm-hmm. kids don't have those mental loads. Like kids aren't thinking about that. Things are Kids are thinking about what's the next fun thing I could be doing. And so reminding parents of those basic things, teaching parents about lifespan development, teaching, and that's a huge thing, right? With family therapy, teaching parents like, this is where your kid is at in their development. This is what their brain understands. Because parents a lot of times teach, they treat children like tiny adults. And that does not work because kids are not tiny adults. Like our brains are not fully developed till we're in our mid-20s. We don't fully mm-hmm. understand everything that's going on until that point. And so we need to meet them where they're at first and foremost. For you, I definitely want to work on like, number one, expressing some of the feelings that you both were having, because I'm sure there was some animosity on both ends that like, why is this not working? And mm-hmm. then going from that, how can we improve this system? And that again means negotiation on both sides. You want X, Y, and Z. They want X, Y, and Z. Where can we meet in the middle to make this a little bit easier on everybody? Because I do agree, you should have roles and responsibilities that involve the household. Your mom should not be in charge of everything. But you should not have things taken away if you're not doing those roles. Because you're also, I'm assuming at that time, a full-time student. You're also doing all these other things. You're growing up. And your job is not to take care of the household. Your job is to help take care of the household. So clarifying some of those roles and then working on again, what were the things you wanted as a teen? Sounds like you wanted to hang out with your friends. So what did you need to do in order to reach that expectation? And then, you know, maybe some... Wow, did you see that? (laughs) No, that was cool. (laughs) She always does this while I'm on call. Um, (laughs) I have a stage five clinger pad, so. Um, So going off of that, like, awesome, maybe some special rewards. Like if you've had a really good couple of months, maybe you get to stay out till 10 o'clock instead of nine o'clock. You know, maybe we work towards some really big goals. And again, it doesn't have to be anything expensive or big, just something that makes you feel like you like really earn something. You're working towards something like how many times do we decide that we're going to take a nap instead of cleaning the house? Like that's a human reaction. If we're not working towards, uh, if we're not working towards a timeline or a goal, what are we doing? Yep. No, I think it's it's really interesting how even the wording is going to be different. Like the way that it's you speak about it, the way that you're trying to find a way to negotiate so both sides can benefit. And I, I love the way that you said that the kids aren't taking care of the house. They're going to help take care of the house where it's like because it's not their responsibility, but it is kind of what they're they should be doing. We're balancing that point where you're defining the roles. And I think I think defining what a parent's role and a child's role should be is really difficult because sometimes it is really difficult for them to not overlap and for like a boundary to be crossed on both sides. Yes. But it's, it's really interesting to be able to really just define what a parent should be doing and what a child should be doing. No, I love that. Yeah. Boundaries are super important, but yeah. And like, I really appreciate the idea of a kid taking care of the kid's things like I feel a little bit weird sometimes about the amount of responsibility some kids in some of my households have because I do feel like it's too much and I I do try to push back on families about that because I see families where kids are making all the meals and kids are doing all the chores and like that's a lot Mm -hmm. it's a lot to manage if you don't if you as an adult don't want to be doing all that your kids shouldn't be doing all of that it should be both and and so I think that's super important And I think there could be, again, like shared responsibility. Like 
And if the kid loves to cook, let the kid cook. Like we don't need people to be doing chores they hate. You need to do the chore that you hate least because everyone hates chores. But I really like when I like when parents are very um, intent on the kid taking care of the kid's space. So their room, their bathroom, the, their messes and making sure that that's kept up. Because I think that's super important. That is also how I was raised. So I am biased in that perspective as well. But like I think taking care of like your area is important but should you be cleaning up after mom and dad not necessarily why are mom and dad not cleaning up after themselves you know and that Mm -hmm. does come back to breaking down some of these barriers on like oh well that's how my parents raised me and trying to challenge some of those ideas because like we don't have to do that again no yeah i completely agree and now going into the some of the practices that we would go through what is a practice that you would do to improve a family routine and also promote positive outcomes for the family so a big thing that we talk about um kind of like identifying what each of your roles are from the beginning um there's a lot of pathways for that um there's some things that have been created a long time ago that like talk about what each of our family roles are so like first and foremost you define the family role then you get into kind of like what does your day-to-day look like and so everyone talks about their day-to-day from their perspective and then like what they think everyone else is doing Mm-hmm. I think that's important to begin with because like kids oftentimes like don't recognize what all their parents are doing because like they're not there all day so like kids are just in their imagination like what are you doing all day so like we talk about that right like we have open honest conversation about like I go to work and all this happens and you go to school and then we come home and then usually we ask kind of like this miracle question and so a miracle question is like okay Dina if I was to sit you down right now you go to sleep and then a magical fairy godmother comes and she fixes all your problems. What would your life look like? When you wake up, how would you know your problems are solved? How would you know that looks like? And so oftentimes a miracle question is going to give me a lot of insight into what a family's actual goals are. Mm-hmm. I like to do goal setting. I like to set smart goals, which are specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timeable goals. But I also like to see like, what is your ideal? Like, what is your dream? Like when you lay in bed and you're like, I cannot believe my mom made me clean the bathroom again. What did you want to happen there? And we Mm -hmm. try to fit somewhere in the middle, right? Like we try to hit these smart goals when we also try to like, we want people to be happy. So we start there and then we work on achieving smart goals. Like I said, those are little itty bitty goals, things that we can work on each of us. And I try to encourage across the board changes of responsibility. I try to encourage everybody to do things a little bit differently and see how that helps. But a lot of it's going to be consistency and accountability as well. They have to come to therapy every week and tell me whether or not they did it. And that's a big deal for people too. People forget that. People are like, well, we did so good when we were coming to therapy. And I'm like, that's because you were worried what was going to happen if you came in and told me you didn't do anything. When I'm out of the picture, what's happening there, right? So accountability is a huge part of it. Um, and that accountability can be with your partner and in your family system as well. It doesn't have to just be your therapist. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the challenges that sort of do come up when you're forced to sort of go into that habit and sort of practice throughout, especially when it comes to trying to have that positive outcome? Mm. There's usually one member of the family who's pretty resistant and doesn't see a need to change. There's usually also usually that person is not willing to hear why people have an issue with what's going on. Um, A lot of times people are really hyped up and like ready to make change when they're in the therapy room and then they come back a week later and nothing's happened. So really trying to figure out how we can get active movement on those things is really important. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like I said before, time management's a huge thing and trying to figure out like how we can make change. People get so overwhelmed with that um, because they're like, I just don't have any more to give. And I'm like, I get that. And that's because, again, like, mom, you have too much on your plate. Let someone else take some of that load off, right? Like, usually if you want you're going to have like people that are resistant for different things. You're going to have someone that's resistant because they don't want to do it. And you're going to have someone that's resistant because they don't know how to do it. And so trying to meet everyone and help them find ways to work through that. Usually most people are resistant, though. They don't, like I said earlier at the beginning, homeostasis is super important. People want um, things to stay the same. Mm -hmm. And how do you think that this practice, if you do it consistently, how does that impact family and also the whole idea of what their life is going to look like in terms of the long run? I don't think there could be any negative outcomes to making positive change like this. I think Mm -hmm. consistency and flexibility and accountability are very important for a family unit. Like I said earlier, kids with ADHD, kids with defiant disorders, kids with mood disorders, they really thrive on consistency and accountability. They thrive with knowing their role in the system. So like they will probably start to do better emotionally, academically, socially, if you do it long-term enough. I feel like people will get along better with their partners and their children because they feel like less burden about coming home every day you feel like you're sharing the load a little bit more so like Mm -hmm. realistically a family should get closer their kids should start to perform better everyone should feel better if we're doing this and this slides into the last topic of our show which is the open mic it gives you a chance to talk about anything that you are wanting to share with the audience basically it's going to be from you straight to the audience and just share the first thing that something that you're really passionate about. Right. So like I said, right now I'm working on a psychology podcast with two of my colleagues who are both also marriage and family therapists. And we talked a lot about a a lot about these issues as well. And I think in general, like there is a lot of good free information out there, not just from myself. Like if you're tired of hearing my voice and you don't want to hear it anymore, that's totally cool. But like out there in the universe, there is information everywhere. Therapists have YouTube channels, they have podcasts, they have books. Like this information is available to you. If you feel like you can't make time for therapy or you cannot afford it, that's okay. Buy a book, watch a YouTube video, do something. There's so many ways that we can grow out there. Like even now, I've been doing this for years and I will pull up a YouTube video to watch with a client and I'm like, whoa, I learned something today. Like I didn't even know that. Like there's so much information to be shared. And on top of that, you know, there are some cheaper options for therapy out there if you guys do need help. Like there's places called, in the United States, we have a place called Open Path, which is low cost therapy services that therapists provide. Um, There's scholarships out there. There's people that provide sliding scale therapy because they're trying to get their hours to get licensed. Like there's options out there. So like, don't let the fear of change hold you back. Listen to whatever it is to try to get help go see somebody, even if it's only for every other week or once a month, because that's what you can afford. Like I am passionate about helping people find change and I feel like we can better these systems. So like find a way to do that. I'm not the only therapist out there with a podcast, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think especially when it comes to um, finding other therapists as well, there's a lot of availability on um, universities who are doing like student, who are student therapists as well. Oh my gosh, exactly. Yeah, there, there really is no excuse for not going. And usually oh the gosh. people, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and usually the people that um, say that don't want to go are the people that need it the most. 
So <laughs> I will say I will sort of end it with that. Um, but thank you so much, Kinsey, for coming on and talking about not only our topic for today, but also a whole other aspect in terms of what your business does and what your company does. And it sounds like it's thriving, which is amazing, which is amazing yeah. to hear, especially throughout COVID and throughout all those times. It's it's so good that it's it's one of the businesses that did survive, one of the companies that are still going on strong. If audiences would like to get in contact with Bloom Therapy, how would they sort of find where you are? Right. So I am pretty easy to find. I'm the only Kinsey Pochio in the world. So you just Google my name and I will show up there. I'm on Psychology Today. Um, my business website is live. You can send me an email. You can uh, call. So my email is Kinsey at bloomandhealtherapy.com. Uh, but like I said, I am literally on like every therapy platform you can be on because I'm always trying to expand the business and I am the only Kinsey P in Florida. So you can find me pretty easy. Just choose one of those methods, send me a message. I do respond within 24 hours if you need help finding a therapist. Otherwise, I would really encourage Psychology Today as a platform. They have the option to sort by zip code, insurance, price, etc. So that's a really good place to start for those of you that have a hard time finding somebody for help. Well, that is amazing. So thank you so much again, Kinsey, for joining me on the show today and for talking to us and for spending an hour talking about something that you seem very passionate about. Oh, thank you. I do like to think it's passion after all these years. I really appreciate the <laughs> invite. This has been fun. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. And yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. I will definitely see you all in the next episode. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights podcast produced by Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.